You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome to the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is the national bipartisan institute dedicated to preventing, mitigating, and resolving violent conflict worldwide. My name is Andrew Wells-Dong. I'm a senior expert in the Asia Center at USIP, and I'm pleased to be moderating today's panel discussion about justice and accountability for Khmer Rouge atrocities in Cambodia. This event is connected with an exhibit that USIP and the Seven Foundation are hosting this summer um, entitled Imagine Reflections on Peace Building. And that exhibit is just outside of the auditorium here uh, and uh, features photographs and stories from six countries around the world that have suffered and survived violent conflict. One of those countries is Cambodia. And so today's event aims to tell more of the story behind the photographs and the exhibit and uh, tell stories of Cambodia's history and present um, in which the Khmer Rouge have, uh, at least to an extent, be held accountable for the atrocities committed during their rule from 1975 to 79. <coughs> the exhibit asks the question, why is it so difficult to make a good peace when it's so easy to imagine? And I think that question applies well to Cambodia, uh, which, you know, although the Khmer Rouge period has been over, um, continues to uh, deal with the effects of the Indochina War, with U.S. involvement, the Vietnamese occupation after that, and then the post-settlement uh, uh, political debates among Cambodian parties, which are going on to this day. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, we'll hear today from three panelists who will give uh, more uh, perspective on each of these periods. Uh, we'll hear about the uh, period leading up to 1975 when the Khmer Rouge took power uh, and the context that enabled that to happen. Um, we'll hear about the documentation of the atrocities both during and after that period, uh, which Cambodian citizens have led with international support. Um, and we'll hear about uh, an effort, again, led by Cambodians uh, and with international participation to hold Khmer Rouge leaders accountable, um, namely the tribunal called the Extraordinary Chambers in the Courts of Cambodia, or ECCC, that was set up in 2001 and uh, has tried uh, nine accused cases up to now uh, with some mixed results, um, but it happened. And it's a, it's a model of a hybrid uh, international tribunal that, uh, that we will discuss more about. So those are some of the topics that we hope to cover today. Uh, we'll have three presentations followed by questions and answers from our small in-person audience and online. So it's my pleasure to introduce first Elizabeth Becker, who is an author and journalist who's covered Cambodia since the 1970s. She's the author of When the War is Over, and most recently, 
uh, a book about the experiences of women journalists during uh, the yes. Indochina War called You Don't Belong Here. Thank you. <laughs> uh, our second speaker who will join us online from Phnom Penh is Lee Sok Hieng. He's the director of the Anlong Veng Peace Center uh, of the Documentation Center of Cambodia. Anlong Veng being the town where the Khmer Rouge leaders lived after the conflict uh, uh, until they were reintegrated into society. And our third speaker is Susanna Sakuto, who is the uh, director of the War Crimes uh, Program at the Washington College of Law at American University. And she was an advisor to the uh, prosecution office of the ECCC from 2004 to 16. So thanks for our three panelists, and I look forward to uh, a productive discussion. Elizabeth. Um, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, USIP, for putting this on. Um, the war ended in 79, and um, you can't talk about um, the victims more um, today than you did right, right then. Um, I, I'm charged with um, going through the history. And as usual, I could go for three hours instead of 15 minutes. So I'm going to try to make a very complex story a little more um, uh, uh, comprehensible. I'll warn you that um, when you were asking about obstacles, the chief obstacles were governments, governments, and um, governments that said they were looking for peace, governments that wanted democracy. And when, when it was time to make a decision, the decisions went the other way. So prepare yourself. Um, you mentioned the United States, China, Soviet Union, Vietnam. Everybody had a complex role, and the story is a little long. I'm going to start in 1953 when Cambodia was lucky enough to be the only country to win independence from France without a war and keeping their country whole. So this, the first Indochina war ended with this independence for all three, but Vietnam was divided, Laos was divided, not Cambodia. Um, the winner of the first democratic election was Prince Norodom Sihanouk, and he was smart enough to say, we can't get eaten up by this second Indochina war, which was American fueled, so he made Cambodia neutral. This was very smart. Um, of course, it was not welcomed by either side, and he had to, um, to make some deals. His deal with the communist world, supporting the Viet Minh and, and Ho Chi Minh, was that in exchange for their refusal to support a Cambodian ins communist insurgency, he would allow them to use the eastern border of Cambodia for their what became known as Ho Chi Minh Trail and their um, deep, deep water seaport, Sihanouk um, Seaport, Sihanoukville. So that was his deal with the communists. With the, um, with the American side, to placate them, he agreed to be mum whenever the South Vietnamese went into the fight on the eastern border and when the United States in 1969 had their um, intensive bombing campaign. So he was trying to keep a balance. It was messy, it wasn't perfect, but it kept the country out of the war. And I want to remind you that it was completely surrounded by belligerents. To the west was Thailand with their air bases for the US, north was Laos, and to the east, of course, was Vietnam. The turning point was 1970 when um, Prince Sihanouk was overthrown. 
Now, in theory, it was a democracy, but it was a democracy where Prince Sihanouk just happens to keep winning the elections. And obviously, um, it was a one-party rule. So uh, Democrats naively hoped that this would mean democracy and stay out of the war. No, within days, Cambodia was pushed into the war. The new leaders, um, led by Lon Nall, a general, uh, immediately went on the American side, declared war against Vietnam, and Cambodia was pulled into the Vietnam War. This is really important. The Khmer Rouge came out of the Vietnam War, not out of a civil war per se. So from 1970 till the end of 1972, the Cambodian government under Lan Nol was fighting Vietnamese, the Vietnamese communists. Now, um, 1970 in May, the US invaded Cambodia in support of this new Cambodian government to push the communist Vietnamese out of the country back to North Vietnam. It, it, the opposite happened. The Vietnamese took over vast amounts of Cambodia and, um, and the Lan Nol government was struggling. The United States underwrote this entire war um, and um, it was to the dismay of the American public. 1968, President Richard Nixon won um, election because he promised peace and instead in 1970 expanded the <coughs> Vietnam War into Cambodia. So for those two years, 70, 71, and 72, actually three years, um, Cambodia was fighting Vietnam. Where were the communist Cambodians, the Khmer Rouge we're gonna be talking about? They were behind the Vietnamese lines, forcing, their, using the, Viet the Vietnamese communist army as a shield while they built up their own forces, took over more and more of Cambodian territory and Prince Sihanouk was in Beijing, an exiled leader, supporting them. So it was a huge flip from being an insignificant communist insurgency in Cambodia with no territory, at most 5,000 troops, they suddenly became a growing army supported by the Vietnamese and the Chinese who had previously not supported them materially because they wanted to keep Cambodia neutral. This is one of those points where you say, ooh, I wish President Nixon had not gone into Vietnam, Cambodia. Anyway, so, um, so this is where they were when um, the United States understood that it was time. They're, they were losing the war in Vietnam and they made a peace accord in 1973. That peace accord meant the United States would withdraw from Vietnam and the North Vietnamese would withdraw from Cambodia. That was another, there were many aspects to it, but for this purposes, this is important. So North Vietnamese, the Vietnamese communists leave Cambodia. This is when, in, in um, the beginning of 1973, when it does become a civil war. Now think about that. Um, the Khmer Rouge are relatively fresh, Lan Nol government is not. The United States can only use air power against um, the Khmer Rouge because of, of the peace accords and, and the Senate's refusal to continue supporting a war. Remember, the United States had been fully in the war since 65. So um, fed up, and um, that's when I come into the country. I, I was a reporter there, and um, I arrived at the beginning of 1973, just as it was becoming a civil war, and I you know, was fresh out of graduate school, and I saw 
what was becoming um, you know, one of the, the worst uh, bombing campaigns of the whole war. In um, July, the United States dropped 51,000 tons of bombs on Cambodia. Now, there were no industrial targets. There were not, this is countryside-wide. And um, it was, it, from the, it looked like indiscriminate bombing of rural Cambodia, although the United States Air Force would, would say they were doing it for this, that, and the other. But what happened was that um, the rural countryside was, was utterly devastated. Um, people flooded into Phnom Penh. The United States was supporting the war 100% without doing any kinds of regulations to prevent the utter corruption and to the point where they were giving food aid to the government for the people flooding into Cambodia and, and it, instead it was sold on the, um, the black market. I could go on about the whole thing. It was, is horrible to watch and it, um, 50 years later it still is an incredible impression on me. But I want to show you some photographs of that period, please. That's me. Um, I don't know if you can see it, but that's the leader, Lon Nall, and um, with the lay on. And um, this is the Khmer Republic. These are journalists in the field. This is me talking to Ying Suri at the United Nations. Now, these are not in right order. Anyway, I'm going to go past this for now. Oops, that's it. That's all I have. That was the PowerPoint, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to go back. Okay. okay. Um, so by April 75, um, the war was over. Didn't take very long. Um, the Khmer Rouge had won. This is amazing. Um, and um, this is when the horrors begin. And uh, you're going to hear more about this in, in terms of um, what happened in the countryside and um, getting rid of the old society. And um, the one thing I want to make a point of is historically is I can't underline how incompetent these people were. They had no governing experience. They were full of themselves because they won a radical revolution faster than any other revolution, better than the Vietnamese, better than the Chinese. They were just... Um, it's impossible to tell you how arrogant they were. And it was a very, so they had, there were no breaks. Rapid destruction of the country. Um, it got to the point where it was so bad that um, they started, they recognized their failures and they started the purges, the purges to, get, to blame people for um, their own failures to the point where um, they had to look to a foreign problem and they decided on Vietnam. And Vietnam would be the country they could blame. And now I'm gonna just, I was, um, I was back to Democratic, this is Democratic Kampuchea. Um, I visited it in, at the end of 1978 when the war with Vietnam was just starting. These are some of the pictures. These are the, um, okay, I might as well leave it with my photo of Pol Pot. Um, I was shocked. There were no temples. There were no markets. They had completely gotten rid of the old society. Everybody was in rural labor camps. Um, no markets, nothing. It, it, you were in a labor camp, and that was it. Um, then on the last day of my visit, I met Pol Pot, who um, didn't want to be interviewed. I was with two others. Um, he would only warn that um, Vietnam Communist Vietnam, who was the reason why he was in power, because they fought. Communist part, he decided Communist 
Vietnam was the reason for all their failures, and um, he wanted NATO to help. Um, uh, instead, Vietnam did invade, and I'm just going to go a few minutes over because this is very important. Vietnam did invade and threw out Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, January 1979. They expected the world to applaud. They, of course, they made the big mistake of lying, saying that they hadn't done it, that some, uh, um, some Cambodian, um, like Hun Sen, had fled the Khmer Rouge and, and led the force. But they had, um, they believed that because they'd gotten rid of what the United States and Europe had, had already decided was grossly human rights and, um, abuses. But in fact, geopolitics were against them. The United States went from condemning the Pol Pot to supporting a coalition that included him that lasted for another 10 years. That's a huge obstacle. The United States, Europe, ASEAN worked with China keep the Khmer Rouge going to fight the Vietnamese because they decided the Vietnamese were worse than the Khmer Rouge. Um, and in fact, the Khmer Rouge kept their seat at the UN until through all of that. So that, that's another instance of a government standing in the way. The Vietnamese made the first attempt to, have, uh, to bring justice with a, a trial of in abstention of the DK regime. Now, of course it was one-sided, of course it was propaganda, but it was the first time we all saw the documents and we saw tool slang. It was the first time we saw any of this, but it was condemned and the push continued. Um, eventually, the Vietnamese were withdrew and they said, essentially, in negotiations, fine, you want Cambodia? Here it is. Now, how long do you think it's gonna take for the Khmer Rouge to take it over? Suddenly, there were peace talks. Suddenly, in fact, Richard Solomon was part of it, one of the people. And um, the, the chief countries that I would say are responsible for a lot of that war were the ones who determined the outcome. That's United, the five, uh, five permanent members of the um, United States United Security Council, the United States, then Soviet Union, now Russia, China, Great Britain, and France. So, Peace, peace accords, peace, peaceful UNTOC, peacekeeping mission, democratic elections, and this is the last, the last um, bit where the governments fall apart. The elections, um, 98%, 90, over 90% of the eligible voters cast ballots. There was a clear winner, Prince Nordam Roderit, son of Sinuk. He won 45% of the vote and 58 seats in the parliament. Hun Sen, who had been the prime minister under the Vietnamese and thought he would win naturally, he'd been the leader of the country for almost 10 years, um, he came in second with 38% of the vote and 51 seats. Ronerit refused to accept the results. Sounds familiar, unfortunately. And um, his, one of his senior leaders threatened a coup d'etat a secessionist movement. So what did the UN do? They caved. They created a dual prime ministership, giving Hun Sen equality with Ron Arit. Within a few years, 1997, Hun Sen had gotten rid of um, Prince Ron Arit in a coup, and he's been leader ever since. And whenever he's been um, threatened with um, an opposition party that might win an election, he's had a coup. Um, so. I'm going to end there. <laughs>
a few minutes late and just say, um, you'll hear from the others how much this is, um, these kinds of behaviors kept seeding more and more problems. And um, I'm just thinking of a, a peace activist, Khmer American named Thierry Singh, who was imprisoned for simply going about the business of trying to improve peace in the country. And, um, and we just sent away uh, 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 last month. So it's an ongoing issue, even though Khmer Rouge were thrown out in 1979. The seeds of refusal to hold them accountable are still alive. Thank you. Thank you for that historical overview. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there'll be some points for discussion when we, when we come to that. I'd now like to introduce uh, Lee So King from the Documentation Center of Cambodia, who will talk about his work to investigate and, and document uh, some of what happened during the Khmer Rouge regime and, and since. Thank you, Andrew, and, uh, and uh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, USIP, for having me tonight from Cambodia. I'm talking instead of DCPM, Mr. Jok Chang, the director of DCPM. The full name of DCPM is Documentation Center of Cambodia. It, it's now it's an independent Cambodian Research Institute. But uh, I just want to give you a little bit background of DCPM. Actually, DCPM was founded after the US Congress passed uh, Cambodian Genocide Justice Act in April 1994, and former President Clinton signed, signed it into law. And that legislation established the Office of uh, Cambodian uh, Genocide Investigation in the U.S. State Department bureaus of East Asian and Pacific Affairs in July 1994. So. Uh, from 1995 to 1997, uh, Yale University uh, got a grant from the uh, State Department, and then uh, Yale created a, a program for Cambodian genocide program to conduct research training and documentation on the Khmer's regime. So at that time, uh, CGP, Cambodian genocide program, uh, uh, like have an objective to assemble evidence concerning the leadership of the uh, Democratic Cambodia and to determine whether the DK regime violated international criminal law on genocide, war crimes, and crime against humanity. So later on, in uh, CGP, create a field office. That's what uh, these claims start. It's work. Uh, so the field office started in 1995, and uh, two years later, we have a PCPM. So uh, it's now an independent Cambodian Research Institute. So we have two objectives, uh, as Elizabeth uh, has mentioned about the public history. So that's why PCPM uh, uh, focused uh, its work on uh, to record and preserve the history of the Khmerous regime for future generations and also to compile and organize information that can serve as a potential evidence in a legal accountability of the Khmer rules. So uh, in the meantime, DCPM uh, have two kind of uh, archives. 
first we call the Kairos archive that focused uh, from uh, uh, 1925 to 1929. And uh, we have second category of archive is uh, human rights archive. So we have archive before the Khmer rules and the archive after the Khmer rule. So we, we have two categories. And uh, right now we have 200 and approximately 221 uh, document, uh, thousands of documents. And uh, we have approximately 1.7 million pages of document. So the document we have, uh, like the biography of Khmeru's members, victim, minute meeting, so confessions, a lot of uh, document, like a mixed mixed document. And uh, besides this, we have a physical information as well uh, in relation to the uh, the Khmer Rouge regime. We uh, found out uh, 197 security center, or we call prison, and we found out uh, nearly 20,000 uh, mass grave, or we can say. Uh, 390 burial sites. And uh, we also uh, have a statistic of uh, the memorials, genocide memorial after and after the genocide, we have at 81. So that's uh, uh, the document we have, the archive we have, and we, in order to, to make it easy for researcher, for the public or for legal expert, to get access to it, we have uh, we we have created a four kind of database. We have a bibliographic, bibliographic database, a biographic database, photographic database, and geographic database. So we uh, with this uh, in 2004, I think uh, UN sent its fact finding uh, team to evaluate our archives. So at least uh, 200,000 pages of document are believed to be very uh, important for the trial of the Khmer Rouge. So uh, during the whole process of the, of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, uh, DCKM, DCKM supply at least hundreds of thousands of pages of document uh, to ECC. That means to all uh, office of the ECC, like prosecution, defense, call it lawyer, any party who requested to uh, visit him. So uh, this is so all the archive we have uh, serve as uh, like an essential documentary base for uh, those uh, unit or office to further investigate the crimes of the Khmer Rouge. So. Uh, in the meantime, DZCAM tried to make it an easy access to uh, people across Cambodia as well, like we create five regional centers, like uh, myself, I focus on uh, on the YT center, like uh, two provinces together, like Odomian J and CMB. So all the archive we have in Phnom Penh uh, sent to those provinces and uh, pre-service teachers, students, the public can get access to it. Uh, very convenient, like they have a, an office space for them to sit. And uh, yes, yeah, very brief. And I, I think uh, 
I look forward to answer any question from the audience. Thank Great. you, Andrew. Thank you very much for uh, introducing the work of DCCAM and the Anlong Veng Peace Center. And uh, I'd like to turn to Susanna, who will put this in the framework of uh, transitional justice and accountability. Thank you. Many thanks, Andrew, and many thanks to uh, USIP for the invitation to uh, be here today on this panel and uh, to uh, put, put some context into uh, um, the exhibit. I thought I'd start out uh, talking a little bit about how the War Crimes Research Office uh, was engaged with, uh, with the tribunal, with the ECCC, it's a mouthful, um, and then uh, perhaps move on to an assessment of the court, what I think were some of its main uh, accomplishments and outstanding uh, challenges continue to be, and then perhaps end with a few recommendations on the way forward as the court now moves into sort of its residual um, phase. So the War Crimes Research Office was established in 1995 to promote accountability for atrocity crimes. And it was created essentially to provide the kind of specialized and technical legal research uh, analysis, research and analysis, uh, that prosecuting these kinds of crimes, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, requires. And so for 25 years, the, the War Crimes Office has served as a key resource for tribunals prosecuting atrocity crimes. In the early years, uh, we uh, supported ma mainly the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, the sort of contemporary ad hoc uh, criminal tribunals uh, created in the aftermath of those conflicts. But since the early 2000s, uh, the office also assisted so-called what are hybrid or internationalized or internationally supported tribunals um, that uh, were tasked with, with uh, prosecuting atrocity crimes. And we have provided that same kind of legal assistance uh, to nearly all such tribunals that have been established since the, since the early 2000s, including the ECCC. In this case, significantly, our office was also involved in early initiatives designed to support the establishment and operation of justice mechanisms um, to prosecute atrocity crimes. And one of our earliest efforts in, um, in that regard was our involvement in various sort of uh, civil society and NGO um, technical assistance missions uh, to Cambodia in support of discussions between civil society groups, government actors, and other stakeholders around the establishment of the ECCC. And those visits date back to 2003, so 30 years later um, after you were in the country. So with respect to assessment, um, as many of you are no doubt aware, there has been lots and lots and lots of critique uh, about the work of the ECCC, both uh, with regard to the limited number of cases um, at a, that it was able to conclude um, at, at a significant cost, but also with regard to its hybrid structure, which gave uh, Cambodians sort of the majority of um, judges on, uh, on each of the pretrial trial and appeals benches. Um, and that structure uh, allowed the court to be vulnerable, um, I would say, to political influence. And so there's been um, a fair amount of legitimate critique about the court. Uh, but that has been much in the press. And so what I want to do uh, today uh, is start out by saying a few words of what I think is the court's chief um, accomplishments. So obviously there are some, there are the convictions, right? Uh, conviction of Doik, who is the director of Tom Penn's infamous detention and torture center known as um, the S21 prison, um, through which 14 to 17,000 uh, people went through and died in less than a four-year time span. And of course, the convictions of the surviving senior leaders, the late uh, Noon 
Chea and uh, Kyu Sampan. But what I want to suggest is that there are measures beyond convictions, beyond counting those convictions, by which to judge the achievements of the, of the court and the tribunal. And what I, what I think gets lost sometimes is one of the most critical accomplishments of the ECCC was its efforts to engage the people most affected by its work, uh, the Cambodian people, through its early public outreach efforts and innovative participation in reparation schemes, the tribunal was brought much closer to those who suffered atrocities than previous tribunals had been able to do. So unlike, for instance, the ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, uh, which sat far from the communities affected by those conflicts, the ECCC was not only located in the country where the atrocities occurred, but had, particularly during the trial periods, a robust public outreach program through which it brought Cambodians to the trials and trials to the people. The court, uh, if you, uh, we don't have a photo um, uh, but I'm sure it's in the exhibit. The court has a, a very uh, a very spacious public gallery. Uh, the seating uh, capacity is for over 450 people. It's enabled thousands of people to attend the trials, and and thousands were engaged in the trials through the the court's public outreach programs. They included film screenings and study tours, school lectures. There were even daily television broadcasts during the trials. A staggering 31,000 people attended the first trial against Doik, the uh, head of the S21 Center, at some stage in the proceeding, and 2 million Cambodians watched video footage um, of the trial. That's significant, right? That didn't happen with the earlier tribunals. Another significant innovation of the uh, ECCC compared to previous tribunals uh, was a recognition of the independent role of victims in its proceedings. So this is a little complicated. The law establishing the court did not explicitly pr provide for victim participation. But that law made Cambodian criminal procedure applicable in proceedings before that court. And that procedure, which is based on the French legal system, including a included a mechanism by which victims of the crimes being prosecuted could participate in the proceedings um, as civil uh, civil parties. So the court's rules, which were drafted by the judges uh, in 2007, permitted victims to exercise their right to take civil action during the criminal proceedings, giving them a right to make interventions in the case, independent of witnesses for the prosecution or defense, and to seek, and this is important, to seek collective and moral reparations. So victims who were able to demonstrate that they suffered physical, material, psychological harm um, as a result of at least one of the crimes prosecuted before the, the court were given an opportunity through their appointed legal representatives to be informed about and participate in the justice process. And they did. So this was something, uh, it was a, a scheme that was used. Over 4,000 victims applied to participate as civil parties in the first two cases to go to trial, nearly all of which were granted. And for many, that ability to, to participate in proceedings was meaningful, was significant, right? It meant that their voice and what they had experienced received some degree of recognition by the court. Some victims used that process as an opportunity to process their own experiences, to find some sense of personal closure. And importantly for some, it meant having an actual impact in the case. And I'll give you an example. Lawyers uh, of victims participating in the case against the senior leaders brought to the prosecutor's attention evidence of forced marriage and rape in the context of forced marriage, which was not in the prosecutor's original submissions to the judges charged with investigating the case. 
Ultimately, that was the reason those, those charges um, were in the case, right? The prosecutor sought to and succeeded in including these charges in the, in the indictment against the accused. So again, there was significant impact there. A final contribution, I think, uh, again, compared to previous international tribunals that I quickly want to touch on is the ECCC's approach to reparations, right? Last year, um, actually over a year ago now, um, our office conducted research into approaches that courts adjudicating atrocity crimes at both the national and international level have used to implement reparations in cases in which the defendant is indigent or otherwise unable to fully cover their cost. And what we saw was a number of different approaches, including, for instance, the, the, the issuance of reparations orders directly against the state, um, the use of trust funds uh, to fill, fulfill reparations awards, and in the case of the ECCC, the innovative use of what we called quote-unquote project partnerships. Now, beyond the first case uh, in which reparations essentially took the form of the court naming um, uh, or releasing the names of victims of deceased, uh, with deceased relatives, the, the ECCC developed a unique model in, in which civil society actors NGOs, and in some cases, uh, the government, proposed, designed, and implemented projects to meet the reparation needs of some, some of the survivors. So really, rather than a reparations award against the defendant through the criminal case, the court sort of endorsed projects undertaken by different actors. And in evaluating these projects, the court gave priority to projects that met the express wishes and provided benefits to the civil parties, were linked uh, to the crimes, obviously, for which the accused was uh, being tried, were, were feasible, had a high likelihood of realization, and already had secured some funding. So uh, based on the assessment of these factors, uh, in the first phase of the case against senior leaders, case 002, 11 projects were endorsed. In the second phase of case 002, 13 projects were endorsed. Um, the projects were varied. They focused on education, information sharing, data organization evaluation, community reconciliation, mediation, mental health, memorials, et cetera. So there are lots of ideas and lots of, uh, of projects. The thing I want to point out is that there were significant benefits to that approach, again, by comparison to other tribunals. For one, reparations were made available to civil parties more quickly than through other approaches, since the projects were actually designed and implemented in advance of a final judgment regarding a particular defendant. So for instance, several projects in the case against the senior leaders, including a book of statements by civil parties, a songwriting competition, a public exhibition of sketches based on um, survivors' accounts, and legal education for ethnic minorities, all of that was completed in 2016, uh, a couple of years before the, um, before the final judgment in uh, in the first phase against the defendants was issued. So there was, there was um, delivery uh, on some of those, uh, those expectations. So while no one denies uh, that there was serious shortcomings in the workings of the ECCC, for some victims, the court has in fact had a significant impact. But the question is, where are we today, right? The, the court is now approaching the end of its mandate, will be closing down uh, before the end of the year, and the discussions have now moved to the residual functions of the court following the end of its mandate. And in fact, there's been an, an addendum to the agreement between the UN and, the, and Cambodia that created the court that recognizes 
um, that there will be reduced but essential functions that, that will need to be undertaken with respect to victims once judicial proceedings have been completed by the court. The point I want to make here is that this is an important moment. We're, we're at a crossroads here, and if the court wants to be recognized for its efforts to engage and impact victims, if that is going to be one of its lasting legacies, the key question will be, how will the court continue to serve victims in this residual phase? Uh, you know, many, many surveys have been conducted with uh, victims. Many, most surviving victims are, are old, they're poor, they're elderly, they suffer from a number of physical and psychological effects from their experiences under the Khmer Rouge, even decades later. Um, and the Khmer Rouge atrocities deeply affected not only those who survived, but also younger generations, right, who have been impacted by the trauma affected by their parents and grandparents. And certain victims, like victims of sexual and gender-based violence, face and, and continue to face additional challenges, including skepticism that they were subject to the, the kind of violence at all because of a moral offenses policy of the Khmer Rouge barring sexual relations between unmarried couples. Despite strong evidence that suggests the policy was inconsistently, if at all, applied or implemented, this perception has and continues to lead to stigma and shame, silencing many victims. So what, what can the court do now? Article two of that addendum requires the, the ECCC to continue to provide for the protection of victims, disseminate information to the public regarding uh, the, the court, and to monitor the enforcement of reparations. So I want to make some suggestions here, some recommendations, um, in addition to uh, the obvious need uh, for protection. Two critical areas should be top of mind as the court moves into its re residual phase, outreach and reparations. Right. As I mentioned, although there were significant outreach efforts aimed at bringing the trials to the Cambodians and vice versa, in the words of a colleague who has surveyed Cambodians year after year after year uh, about the court since it was created, in the last five years, the court has not been victim-centered enough. Right? In fact, her research shows a marked decrease in knowledge of, support for, and satisfaction with the ECCC compared to interviews conducted in the years between 2006 and 2018. Her findings echo Marie Wilmette's submissions to the co-rapporteurs who wrote a, a report about residual functions related to victims, in which she noted the interviews revealed that the civil parties had not received information from the ECCC or their lawyers since 2017 or 18. Right? That while they were generally positive about their civil party participation, a significant proportion of them expressed frustration at the lack of information and follow-up in recent years. And it actually does seem like when you look on the court's website, the last um, outreach activities on the court site actually date back to 2013. Um, and, and it seems like many of the significant outreach efforts ended largely in 2017 after the end of the case uh, two, second phase of the case two, right? And that now uh, few Cambodians know what is happening um, at, at the court. So, so victims are feeling very discouraged about the court, and I think without an intentional return to a focus on victims, the court actually risks undermining the work it did in service to the victims and the impact it had on the victims during its previous years. Now, what does that mean in practice? Some of the developments of the court aren't easy to talk about, right? They're not, they're, some of them are, are less than positive. Um, and it, that makes it difficult for the court to, to, to address certain constituencies. But it is absolutely critical for the court to let Cambodians know what is happening. 
For instance, it's critical to let Cambodians know what happened to cases what are called 003 and 004, the next level down from the senior leaders, right? It's critical for the court to know that late last year, the Supreme Court chamber, the, the highest appeals chamber, dismissed the international co-prosecutor's appeal requesting it to send, uh, requesting the court to send the cases uh, against two other accused to trial. Right? It's important for them to not only know that, but also to know what that means, right? Uh, for, for them to know that while the decision means that there will be no trial before the ECCC to judicially determine their criminal liability, it does not mean that the court find, found either suspect innocent of the serious crimes for which they were being investigated, right? It's important that the public outreach uh, folks talk about both the decision and its significance. And further, to, to talk about what next, right? That the responsibility to assess their guilt or innocence now rests, if at all, with the Cambodian domestic courts. I would say, so, so what's happened before is important. It's equally important and critical that the court continue its outreach about the cases it did conclude, right? Included concerted outreach about the, or when the appeal judgment um, comes out in the second phase of case two, right? The appeal is actually a, a great opportunity for the court to remind Cambodians of the work it has done, right? The court could very easily leverage its earlier public outreach experience to mount a widespread information campaign via TV, radio, and other audiovisual mechanisms. Those were extremely effective in, in the past, so it could reproduce those. And there, again, there are significant benefits to doing this. Many youth today, in survey after survey we see this, still do not believe what happened right, during the Khmer Rouge period, despite educational efforts and, and programs about the regime. A continued public acknowledgement by the court of the guilty verdicts, of the admissions of, by the perpetrators, and the harms caused could continue to chip away at some of, uh, at, at that state of disbelief. Moreover, explaining the verdicts, particularly with respect to charges like um, sexual violence charges, around which there was so much skepticism, can, can also be useful to change the narrative about what happened, to help victims shift the shame and stigma that have prevented so many from overcoming the deep psychological impacts they suffered from uh, the violence and the forced marriages. And finally, it's critical that the court provide outreach about the residual mechanism, right, and how victims can get involved with that work. Of course, all of that requires resources, right? At a minimum, you would expect for, for this um, to happen, a, a fully staffed, funded, dedicated public information unit or NGO that, that is able and equipped to do the work. That leads me to, the, to my second and last area of focus as the court moves into its residual phase, which is reparations, right? I spoke about project partnerships, the innovative work uh, the court had done. They were innovative and unique, but the projects themselves obviously did not address all needs and benefited only a limited number of people. Um, so although thousands of civil parties were recognized in the cases that were investigated and tried, the, that number, of course, pales in comparison to the total number of families victimized by the Khmer Rouge under whose uh, regime a quarter of the Cambodian population perished. So there were obviously countless victims who were not part of the ECCC's proceedings. So again, there's a clear need to continue to serve the needs of victims through the residual mechanism in some way. One way, I think... Um, to not reinvent the wheel is to build and expand on some of the projects to benefit those whose needs were not or, or only inadequately addressed through the, uh, the court's proceedings. 
I mean, and there's been lots of discussion about ideas, right? One idea that came up in the context of um, the courts may, uh, the, the court held a consultation with victims in May, was that the government should issue a card, just a card recognizing civil parties as victims, which is a measure of satisfaction, just like the names in the first uh, case. It's simple, inexpensive, but meaningful. But of course, there are many other needs, many other ideas, including health care and social services um, for survivors. But there are lots of other um, potential work that could be done by the residual mechanism in this regard. Another option is to survey and assess existing government programs and explore how to link survivor-related initiatives to those programs. Either way, victims and NGOs who support them must be involved in the work of the residual mechanism going forward. Uh, meaning there is a need to ensure that the mechanism work remains centered on victims and that they have some say in the kinds of projects that are uh, prioritized and funded. That means transparency, that means information about how projects are identified, prioritized, selected, funded, and having regular consultations with civil parties, victims, and the NGOs um, who support uh, who support and work with them about how they can apply and participate in, in these processes. And again, I hate to be a, <laughs> you know, the same uh, message, but it will require resources and, and the residual uh, functions uh, work is, is an opportunity to do this. Part of this, uh, like I said, can be done through the staffing up of a public information unit or NGO tasked with this work. But another part of this, particularly regarding the sharing of information with civil parties, can be done through the co-lead lawyers who represented the civil parties in the cases before the court. Again, resources are key, right? Apparently, the international co-lead lawyer recently resigned because of a cut in resources to her and her team, which she argued rendered her unable to ethically represent her clients. If these lawyers are going to play a role in re-engaging civil parties with the court, they must be given resources to do their job. I will yeah, I will conclude um, by saying that we have that there's a real opportunity here for the for the court to re-engage with its primary constituency, the victims of the Khmer Rouge atrocities, and model a victim-centered approach for other courts. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that view of the the history, but also the current status and, and residual functions of, of the ECCC. So in the time we have left, and I think we can go a little bit beyond the hour if everyone's in agreement with that, I'd like to open the floor for questions from the in-person audience and, and also online. <clears throat> so there is a mic here at the front. Yes, please. And if you could just introduce yourself uh, before your question. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for those great presentations. My name is Scott Worden. I'm the <coughs> director of the Afghanistan and Central Asia program here at USIP. Um, I want to ask a, a big question, and I'll, and I'll fill it in with a little bit of context. And the question is, what is the cost of accepting authoritarianism in exchange for, I would put it in quotes, stability? Uh, and I see that theme in a couple of these presentations. I, I note that, Elizabeth, you were saying uh, how the United States and the international community uh, supported one Cambodian leader over another in pursuit of their own geopolitical ends, uh, largely disregarding uh, Cambodian internal issues or, or Cambodian will. And then also for the uh, Anlong Veng director, uh, I know from my time living in Cambodia, you know, that Hun Sen has often defended his own rule and also 
kind of oppose the full mandate of the ECCC saying that a return to the past would stir up violence and, and plays upon people's fear of, uh, of, uh, of instability. Uh, at USIP, we often talk about the difference between positive peace and negative peace. So what, negative peace being simply the absence of violence, positive peace being more social harmony. Uh, and I see these issues playing out a lot in, in Cambodia, PS, also in Afghanistan. Uh, and I just want to know from Elizabeth and also the Anlong Feng director, you know, What's your, uh, I've heard your, uh, an implicit critique, but what's your defense of, of a different way forward? How can we, looking at our conflicts today, uh, learn from Cambodia to uh, understand what are the costs of defaulting toward, let's say, acquiescence of, of strongman tactics uh, versus maybe a, a harder uh, but uh, longer term attempt to deal with a social peace? Uh, well always going to this caving into the strongman um you seed you seed um events that you can't even contemplate i mean the consequences are severe it may be it was easy for the u.n to say okay hun sen will um, i'll start from there because i went through the other history and i think it's quite clear but you know the u.n caving in and giving hun sen um co-prime ministership that's the reason why you now have a, a one-man authoritarian regime in cambodia um, it's, you make that, and it was like that kind of a decision. Um, I want to say, uh, if the last, one of the last things Prince Ranarit did before he was overthrown was to convince Hun Sen to write the letter to the UN asking for the tribunal. And just imagine how things would have been different if you had not had a coup. And I want to add to Susanna's presentation, the because he wrote that letter and because after difficult negotiations, we had the tribunal and vis-a-vis -vis Hun Sen saying we couldn't have a tribunal because it would start a war, in fact, it proved the opposite. And um, I give credit to the tribunal for something that wasn't part of their mandate. They gave Cambodians their history back. Because of that, because of their tribunal, you have a repository of all those documents. Now, DCCAM is inherited a lot, but the, the tribunal has it. You can go on the website. Um, it's like what happened in Germany. If you look at the history of Germany and Japan, it was years before they were able to look at their history. And the reason Cambodia was, was because of the tribunal. That's, that's critical. And now Hun Sen's trying to take credit for everything, denying that the Paris Peace talks meant anything, denying that UN played any role in the peace, denying that the tribunal did anything. And um, that's why Susanna's presentation for me was very interesting, because if you can have that outreach, that's going to be good. But they're running up against a huge fire burst of um, the Hun Sen government trying to deny it. So um, all these NGOs that you're talking about, they're working overtime. I, one of my one that I work with is the Bopana Center, Riti Pan, and he works with Tool Slang, and um, they, they put out um, an app of Khmer Rouge history. And then um, I know that DC Cam worked with the government to have Khmer Rouge history in their books. It's, it's fabulous, the ripple effect, and it's been so effective that the Hun Sen government is trying to push back. So it's, those consequences are constant. So even though it looks easy to support the strongman, in fact, you're laying the groundwork for difficult ability to then achieve the goals you're talking about. 
Keying, do you have any comments on, on that question of uh, how your work is uh, both dealing with and uh, promoting uh, democracy? Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for the uh, <coughs> I don't know him uh, for the question. Actually, I I told, like go back to uh, Susanna a little bit. I totally agree with what you mentioned about where we focus on the uh, those who survived the Khmer Rouge and victim survivor. We also focus on the younger generation as well. And as uh, Elizabeth has mentioned, like DC DC can focus on uh, educating our youth on the history of the Khmer Rouge. So we did this in 2007 and we put it into school curriculum. And uh, we now uh, study about the history in classroom, uh, even now in unknown way. So uh, as you may know, like uh, approximately 2 million people died, but uh, at least 5 million uh, survive and tell the story. So that's why uh, DCTM create a healing project, like focus on uh, those survivors. And we call survivor, not victim or perpetrator anymore, because we just, uh, I may be uh, uh, different from uh, you a little bit, Susanna. Like, uh, I don't want to call civil party have a special privilege, but we put all together as a victim. So that's why uh, we send our team uh, to every province and uh, to to approach uh, survivors, including a civil party. So uh, about like they can tell us about their history and then uh, we refer them to have a medical checkup uh, so that they can take care of their own uh, health. So this is what we are taking care of uh, the people in the meantime, besides in the outbreaks of the COVID-19 uh, uh, 2021. So uh, and we work with uh, 500 volunteers across Cambodia. So this is what we are uh, doing uh, because the court is facing out. So uh, we work with the villagers. So uh, when it comes to the question uh, about peace, uh, it's a really difficult uh, point and people have a different opinion. I, I, I do not uh, dispute that argument, but what I would say is that uh, the Paris Peace Agreement play a really critical role in bringing peace to Cambodia. And uh, I even contribute my article to the to the local English newspaper. I, I encourage uh, the government, even the top leader in the government, say we need to recognize the beginnings as an act of uh, civilization in this uh, country because uh, Paris Peace Agreement did bring peace to our country. But one, what we do not forget is uh, the win-win policy of Prime Minister Hun Sen. I think uh, when I work in unknown way, uh, it's a difficult uh, situation, and without that policy, I think it's really difficult to find peace for our country because the uh, the Camaros are on the border, on top of the mountain, and the government find it hard to defeat them. So, uh, promise them position, uh, life guarantee, property, thing like that. I think it's really uh, like tight their uh, heart and uh, finally we reunite our country, we reconcile and they, they reintegrate into the government uh, 19, in 1998. 
So peace, it's a, it's a, uh, like a really interesting topic. That's why we create Anlong Wang Peace Center in that final stronghold of the Khmer Rouge because <clears throat> in that community, 70 to 80% of them are former Khmer Rouge members still living there. So uh, during the uh, Khmer Rouge before and during the Khmer Rouge tribunal, they, they were not so cooperative in terms of providing information or interview or sharing document. But uh, when we continue to build trust and work with them, so they are now quite open and they share with us the story and they uh, like to provide some photograph during the Khmer Rouge uh, movement after 1929, up to 1998. So we see a different, see a different. And we now find it uh, easy to work with them. So uh, this is what I want to tell you. Uh, the peace is a key uh, thing for us because we need to guard, to uh, safeguard again uh, uh, thing that can cause a negative effect on our society because of some uh, issue in the meantime, like social, social uh, like land grabbing, uh, uh, border insecure, long term border ties, border like economic factors. So that's why uh, we used it as a, a case study for us to uh, to build a sustainable peace in our country. Yeah, thank you. Do we have time for one more question, and then we can also give Susanna a chance to respond? Is this working? No. No. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, we have a few questions coming out online. There's one for Susanna specifically. Uh, corruption and political influence are two other key issues at the court. How much will these affect the legacy of the court and justice for the victims? So it sort of ties into uh, a comment I wanted to, um, to add to, to the uh, responses uh, to the first question, which is uh, I, I think you're, you're right that, that um, Cambodians were given their history uh, through um, through some of this process uh, that that victims have had that the court has had some impact on victims, but but the key here in the in the part that's less easy to sell is the need for persistence, uh, for sustainability in these efforts. Right? Um, I think the the critiques, the corruption critiques, the the political influence critiques, the the slow, the cost, all of those um, matter and are legitimate uh, critiques. Uh, but I think if there is, um, if there, if some of the court's accomplishments, the work in support of victims is to survive, is to be part of that legacy, what we need to remember is how important persistence, resources, and sustainability of these efforts uh, are. It is in this age of disinformation, it is very, very, very easy to roll back gains um, and to confuse the history, uh, despite the documentation, despite what's what's been out there. And so the, the risk is high that some of the gains could be lost. Um, and I think the only way to 
to move forward is is a lesson that I think pertains not just to uh, to Cambodia but to other tribunals as well that come to the end of their mandate. Archives are important. The, the accessibility, the open access to those archives, the uh, the availability in um, in in uh, Khmer and languages um, and and accessibility to the actual information to the kinds of exhibit you you put on here. That is going to be continuing to that that's going to be critical. Um, I think to to the the legacy of this tribunal for victims. Great. Thanks everyone for your attention. And uh, if you haven't seen the exhibit, uh, it's open outside and will continue to be open uh, with time tickets through August 1st. There are photographs by Roland Neveu from 1975 and uh, Gary Knight from 1990 and 2017. So showing the progression of Cambodia through this process of conflict, atrocities, and peace that we've heard about today. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.